Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 36. Today, we are going to be diving deep. We're going to be talking about everything from imposter syndrome and fear of not enoughness to the highlight reel that so many of us show on social media, likely unintentionally, to niching down and bearing witness to fear of mortality, to burnout and self-care. In other words, we are talking about the messy human experience and how that's just the other side of building a private practice. And so, without further ado, here's the show. I'm joined today by John Clark. John is a licensed psychotherapist and the founder of PrivatePracticeWorkshop.com. He has built thriving practices from the ground up in both San Francisco and Charlotte, North Carolina, where he currently runs his group practice called Charlotte Counseling and Wellness. He is personally trained with doctors Aaron and Judy Beck, as well as Dr. Victor Yalom. He loves helping therapists to build their ideal private practice and to learn to do all the things with authenticity and grit. John has a special offer for the therapists in our listening community at the end of the show. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm excited to be here with you. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. I always enjoy our conversations. You know, I wanted to talk with you today about a whole wide range of issues that are developing private practices really lean into and explore. One of the biggest things that I wanted to start with was talking with you about how therapists just kind of learn as they go. You know, there's no perfect formula for developing a private practice and doing the work that we do. So I was wondering if maybe that would be a good place for us to begin our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to break down this mirage that I think is kind of developing, maybe probably very unintentionally between therapists and also then those of us who are consultants and practice builders. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of this focus on, you know, this is how to get your five steps to get to a six figure income and all this emphasis on what you're not doing and how to make all this money that's out there. And I think it probably leaves a lot of people feeling like, wow, I know nothing. (laughs) And I'm starting to wonder, you know, how do I help kind of reverse that and help people feel like, you know what, you can always be doing more in your practice and as a business owner and just as a human, but you're already doing a lot and you're probably doing more than a lot of people as well as there are people who are doing more than you. So I have to practice that for myself a lot as well, even among the practice consultants who are kind of in our field, because there's always someone who's doing more than me and who knows more than me. And it's really easy to feel kind of overwhelmed and incompetent pretty quickly. So, you know, this strikes me because what I hear a lot in my work is how folks are feeling really 
well, how fear kind of really gets in there and all of that imposter syndrome stuff takes over and they start just coming from a place of I'm not enough. Yeah. It digs deep for a lot of us. And, you know, as therapists, we can look at ourselves and go, okay, I kind of know where these feelings, these insecurities are coming from, or I know the psychodynamic roots of them. But sometimes even having that knowledge doesn't inoculate us to feeling really incompetent. So what do you do with that? How do you help shift that? I made a decision at some point, and I try to make this decision every day and kind of renew this decision to not make fear-based decisions in my life. I have fear just like everyone else and just like every practice owner. I'll give you an example. You know, I was just sharing with you before the show that there's a lot kind of getting turned upside down in my life and my practice right now. The air conditioning went out in my building for about four days and my practice was shut down. My clinicians couldn't see people and I was just watching revenue just vanish. (laughs) And we should add for our listeners because the show won't air until the fall, but we're recording in the middle of summer. Yeah, it's summer and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where (laughs) it was 89 degrees in the building itself and the response of the land landlord was, well, I have a fan in my office that you can use. (laughs) Somehow that doesn't seem adequate enough. (laughs) It's not good when you want people to come in and talk about their suffering and pain in their life and to do it in a 90 degree office. I mean, maybe there's some type of therapy out there, kind of like hot yoga, like you could do hot therapy if you wanted to really turn it up, but it just sounds like torture to me. So I do love hot yoga. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I'd want to be doing therapy in that capacity. Right. Yeah. You go into hot yoga being prepared to sweat and that's part of the experience. So, you know, I got myself into a bit of a mess with this landlord because I expressed a lot of my discontent with how it was handled and that it was, you know, not fixed for four days and ended up getting evicted because of the way we kind of clashed over this situation. And so here I am about to not only move my house, I'm moving to the other side of town on Friday, but then getting evicted from my office at the same time and getting into this kind of tiff with the landlord. So can we dive into that a little bit more? Because one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was how to manage fallouts and how to pivot. And this sounds like just such a rich opportunity to really dive into that because this is something that isn't going right. It is something that, you know, according to all plans, this is not what you would have written down. It's not what you would have planned. You wouldn't have planned to be evicted from your office. You wouldn't have planned to get into this tiff with your landlord. You wouldn't have planned to do all of this at the same time that you're moving your house. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) but it's going to work. It really shook me up both from a personal standpoint and feeling like there's this person who's kind of in power over me and I'm really struggling with that. And he's this male figure and it really dug deep for me in kind of a nasty way. And it made it hard for me to see my way through it. And just being in private practice, it has been easy to feel really alone in that, especially even in trying to guide the clinicians in my practice through it and help manage their anxieties and just continue to be a leader. And I've planned my business down to the dollar based on this office and this rent. I had started to hire another clinician based on the numbers and then all of that was taken from me. So I really have had to step back and practice what I preach and practice the things that I talk about with my consulting clients and in my Facebook group and on the podcast, which is that so much of being in practice and of just being a human is about being steadfast and about having some faith, whether that's kind of a spiritual faith or just a trust in that things will 
get really messy and then they will settle down again. This summer has really tested that for me in a big way and I'm still right in the middle of it. I just yesterday was able to find a new office with a good friend of mine and I think it's all kind of meant to be. But that anxiety has been high and those are the things that we don't necessarily talk about And again, there's just a lot of, I think, culture out there in terms of like private practice can be this glamorous thing and you can make all this money while working four hours a week and or even that as a consultant that I must have all my stuff together. And the reality is my life is just as messy as the next person's. Yeah, you know, I think it's so true that no matter where we are, whether we are a therapist seeing clients or we're a consultant seeing therapists or whomever we are in this whole greater span, the mess follows us. Like we don't get away from the mess. So, you know, I like to talk about it. Like how do we integrate that mess into our lives? How do we allow the mess to reveal something of beauty to us? And it sounds like in your story that the mess has brought you into a new office space with a colleague of yours that, Yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What did you end up finding? Yeah, I ended up finding after, you know, a week and a half of frantically searching for a new space that something would actually line up perfectly with this friend of mine who was actually the first person to get me started in Charlotte when I came and subleased his office and he took me under his wing and he introduced me to people. And then I went out on my own for a bit and, you know, got into this situation in this other building. And so, I don't know, it does come back to personal connections, I think at the end of the day, and just having people who get it and will help you out and know that things can be really messy and that you can be just a little less alone, I think, and when things get kind of crazy in your practice. But you also kind of do need to have someone to turn to, right? And even the greatest leaders in the country and in the world, they have their mentors as well, right? They have someone that they turn to as well. And I think this is reminding me that it's so important to have that and have those personal mentors. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I would do without mine. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is also like a really interesting conversation here because we're talking about having these mentors and we're talking about leaning into these messy, icky parts of the work. Sure. How do we turn this also into information that becomes a part of the work, right? Because for you, for example, I'm thinking you're a private practice consultant. You Mm -hmm. work with a lot of clinicians who are growing and developing their private practices and they're confronting a lot of messes. Yeah, it's a great point. And there's the parallel with the client work that we do and also the consulting work I do with therapists, which is, again, let's break down this myth of everyone else has it all together, right? Everyone else's life is not as messy as mine. They're making more money. They're happier. Their relationships are better than mine, right? And there's always this striving for more in this kind of even this fear of missing out, like the kind of highlight reel of your life that we show on Facebook, that we have this ideal life. And I just think we have to kind of break that down, right? And I spend a lot of time with clients trying to break that down, right? Especially a lot of the young people I work with who really are spending a lot of time on social media. And they believe what they see, right? They believe even that people do this in my own life where I haven't talked to someone for two and a half years and they reach out and say, Hey John, it looks like you've been doing great. Like based on Facebook, which is like a picture of me and my partner on a roller coaster in Santa Cruz or like a picture of me in Tahoe. And it really is the highlight reel. Right. And so 
when someone says something like that to me, it's hard not to want to just say, yeah, there's been some good times, but actually here's what's really going on in my life. Or actually my air conditioning went out in my office and I just got evicted (laughs) and things have been really difficult lately. And so I struggle with how to just be real in that way, in the way that when we just promote the highlight reel of our lives, what it's doing for other people. It's so funny because we're talking on this podcast, The Practice of Being Seen, about how to be real and how to promote all aspects of our lives instead of just those highlight reels. And yet that's one of the hardest things, right? Because it's so easy to like put the smiling, happy picture of you and your partner It's much harder to talk about the hard stuff, the messy, murky middle of it all. Right. You know, I recently wrote a blog post that I shared with a picture of my daughter crying on the floor. And (laughs) (laughs) that's real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was really, really real, you know, and it was a post about kind of how we can look at the messes and find something of beauty in them. Mm -hmm. So. You know, with that, I wonder if there, but even in that, even in that post that I had written, and I can link to it in the show notes from here, but even in that particular post, it was infused with beauty. It was the afterthought of the mess. It wasn't the mess. I tried to get there, but, you know, I'm not really sharing the moments where my buttons are being pushed and I'm being highly triggered and all of that type of stuff. Just like we're talking about this now and we're talking about how you have found a new office and you're going to be there with your colleague and your friend and your mentor, but we're not talking about, you know, how you're pulling your hair out, yeah. you know, before you knew that this is where you would wind up. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really is about adapting and, you know, going back to, I think how I found myself in doing this consulting work and becoming a consultant was I just kind of realized that being in private practice and even helping other therapists is really just about trying to be one step ahead of people. And it might even be a half step ahead. I think of it kind of like, for those of you, if you've ever taught anything, whether it's elementary school class or just a workshop or anything like that, you're moving people through some experience of learning. You really just have to be one step or a half step ahead of them in order to lead them and to teach them. And so the things that I learn and that I write about and that I coach people about are things that I just learned yesterday. <laughs> you know? I so appreciate that you're stating that. <laughs> yeah. There's no, nothing uh, superhuman about it. But again, I just think a lot of, there's this other image though, that there is something superhuman about it and that we know something really like supernatural that others don't. But I'm just willing to take that extra step and say, okay, this is what I just learned. I think you guys might want to learn it as well. And there's also some research and some evidence that points to when we enter into that teaching role, Mm -hmm. we actually make it ours and we learn it on a much deeper level. Sure. So there's that piece too, that we don't always have to be the expert, but the more steps we take in terms of sharing our knowledge base with others, the closer we get. Sure. Yeah. We had started to talk about fear and I was hoping to kind of come back to that. Um, Let's go there (laughs) just to kind of highlight a pivotal moment in my life and something that most people don't know about. Again, this is not on the highlight reel of my Facebook or my Instagram is that it was actually just this month. It was three years ago that my dad passed away suddenly, just overnight, very unexpectedly. And I already had a lot of fear in my life. I was already living on the other side of the country. I was just trying to make ends meet. I was working a bunch of jobs, working in a really dangerous part of San Francisco in a job that was requiring a lot of me. 
So yeah, so losing my dad was and is a source of fear, right? And going source of fear of both how am I going to be okay without him? How am I going to reckon with my own mortality, right? Because being yeah. a, losing a parent really brings you a huge step closer to that than you ever were before. It removes that barrier between you and death that was there before and that most people, I think, really take for granted, right? But that fear, you know, again, is just still a part of my life every day. But what it did in terms of my work and my business is it removed all of that fear of how much money am I going to make? Am I going to be successful? Should I do this idea? Like everyone else seems to have it all together. And I don't worry about that stuff as much anymore. Can yeah. you go deeper there with me for a minute? Because I'm really curious about this. When you lost your father, which is a huge transformational shift in your life, it's, I lost my father in my twenties and mm-hmm. I can relate to just what a disruption it is. Yeah. That said, having lost your dad, the stuff about removing fear, I don't know if that's as much of a collective experience around loss. I think that's a really unique to you and maybe to a lot of others, but to you, that's where you went with it. And so I want to know more because it feels really rich Yeah, and it's not necessarily something that I'm having a me too experience around. So I'm really curious about it. I think it was more of a paradigm shift for me where... You know, I'll give another example, which is for me in my life, when I, like, I used to have some social anxiety. I used to really worry about like blushing or sweating or saying something awkward. And at some point in my life, actually before my dad passed, I started to really lean into my own mortality and trying to make some sense of it and some meaning of it. That anxiety replaced those other kind of daily anxieties that felt more superficial at that point, right? Like worrying about what other people think of me or if they notice that I'm sweating became inconsequential because of this other fear. So I think they kind of displaced it in a way. So I think this was another version of that where just my life and my own relationship with mortality became really paramount. And so fear of this other stuff, fear of like not making it or making enough money or, you know what I mean? Like having a great online presence, it just became a lot smaller. And when that fear became smaller, it freed me up to go, okay, you know what? I can actually do a lot here and not feel afraid. I have a bit of this kind of thing in my back pocket that is making me less afraid to run a business or to become a consultant or even to hire new clinicians. Because again, in contrast to the bigger fear of life and meaning and mortality, those things didn't matter as much anymore. And so that's a source of my continued kind of stamina with everything I do that is really, you know, that most people don't know about. You know, this is really interesting to me because you and I have had a chance to talk before. And one of the things we talked about then was about kind of connecting back to the greater why. And I know that this ties right back into that. And so I wonder if that's something that we can even bring our listeners into, because what I'm really hearing you say is you're talking about your why. You're saying that when your father died, it connected you to this larger life meaning. And that is the why. And because of that why, that holds the space to make all of this other, these daily things, these things that could shake us up, but they're not as big because there's this why that holds the space for all of it. 
Yeah, it's my why and it's also my why not (laughs) that when I think about doing new things or new pursuits or even things like starting a podcast, it's kind of my why not like I really I love that I don't have much to be afraid of other than, okay, I could fail or my podcast could suck and it's not going to get 10,000 downloads. And even still, I would be okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, I wonder if maybe we could talk a little bit about your why, because I know that your why has some deeper existential threads in it. Yeah. I'll go back to, this was something that I think my dad kind of conveyed actually, and it was political and he had a major kind of role in our community. And most people just assumed that he was actually quite conservative and would tend to vote Republican. And anyway, I won't get too political, but basically something that he conveyed to me really early on was if I can do one thing to reduce the suffering of someone else, I should do that one thing, right? I think at the time there was an election or something coming up and it was like, if I can do that and I have resources and I was born with, you know, the opportunity to go to college and to make some money or like I'm a white man and all of that entails and I can do something like support Medicaid or support, you know, government funded programs that will reduce the suffering of someone else, I should do that thing and so should you. I think that became ingrained in me. And since you and I talked last, I've actually been thinking a lot more about that and have even changed some of like my website copy to reflect this act of service uh, and serving others, which I think, you know, growing up, it had a lot of ties to religion and Christianity for me. And at this point in my life, not quite as much, but it's still a virtue that I really try to stay connected with. It's been about 15 or 16 years, every summer I've gone to the Appalachian region, really rural Appalachia, West Virginia, Kentucky, parts of Tennessee, and worked on houses for people in really remote areas. And that has been consistently my service and something really tangible that I could do for people every summer. And I'm constantly trying to figure out how do I bring that back into my clinical work? It gets really easy to mm-hmm. drift away from that when we talk about making money, raising your fees, right? Hitting six figures or even setting my own consulting fees. Sort of, except for the fact yeah. that the work that so many of us are doing is service. And I think we have a choice to think of it like that or not, right? But I think it's the reason why a lot of us got into it. Yeah. You know, when I hear you talk about this virtue that if I can change the suffering of one, that's what we're doing when we're holding therapeutic space. Even if we're charging a fee for it, we're changing the suffering. I'll give you another parallel, which is just another layer of my life that, again, most people don't know about. So you just have a way of bringing this out of me. (laughs) And I kind of know the culture of your podcast. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to just going to give you a few layers. You're just letting us see you. Yeah, I am. I want to be on brand for your podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, all jokes aside. You, you don't have to go too deep. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I already signed a waiver and everything. I just... <laughs> so I became an EMT when I was pretty young, actually, when I was 18, I think going on 19 and my first year of college. And so many people would say, oh, you know, like, I can't believe you do that. I could never do that. And the reality is you can and you could. And there are people who do it and can kind of stomach these really horrific situations and seeing blood and bearing witness to death and things like that. And at some point I just kind of realized, you know what, I'm actually no more like inherently capable of doing this job than the next person, but I've just kind of realized that I can do it. So I will. Uh, I mean, maybe there are people who are so truly averse to that sort of thing, but 
I realized like half of it was just if you're in a crisis situation and someone needs you, you will do it, right? And you will take care of that person. Or if you're the first person to come across a car wreck, like you will stop and you will not be afraid of blood all of a sudden. Right. So it's also sort about of. just doing Some it people, because you not can. everybody. Okay. <laughs> not everybody. Not but everybody. a lot of people are going to kind of step outside of themselves and go, like, I need to do this thing. Well, right I think now, it's, it's I an interesting point of reflection, right? Because it tells us a lot about who we are. Would you stop and do something? Sure. And if right? not, why not? Right. Or if not, yeah, like, yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, there are times where I can imagine that if I'm in the middle of something and I have my children with me and, you know, there's all of these different scenarios that, you know, I might have a why not. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think we can <clears throat> parallel that with becoming a therapist and the reality totally. that I think being a therapist is not for everyone at, at minimum based on the fact that you will bear witness to an incredible amount of human suffering over the course of even a single day of seven clients, right? And then try to do that over the span of your whole career or 30 years or whatever it is. It's, well, I think it's this also plays into niching though a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Because as therapists kind of position themselves and get themselves out there, they can opt to be generalists who work with pretty much anybody who comes in the door, or they can opt to niche into a particular market and choose whom they work with and what kind of suffering is walking into the door and how that affects them and how much have they worked through their own stuff around that and how yeah. much resolution do they have in their lives and how much are they one or two or five steps ahead of the sure. clients that they're working with and how much aren't they? And I think all of that matters. Yeah. This is really the opportunity that private practice provides. Not everyone is, I think, taking advantage of the opportunity because of other pressures to make money or to be on an insurance panel you don't want to be on or, again, to see clients you don't want to see. But, yeah, the opportunity is to just see people every week that you actually can help and can hold that space for. Not everyone can do trauma work, right? Not everyone can kind of see 15 trauma clients in a week. Not everyone can work with DID, but some do. And I really think even one of my mentors does that work with DID. And it's kind of like he does it because he can. And the other people Let's in town, just break it down for our can't. listeners because I don't know if everybody mm -hmm. understands what DID is. It's yeah, dissociative the, identity disorder, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's really pretty heavy hitting in terms of trying to treat it in talk therapy. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I like to do in my practice is I know exactly who I work with. You know, I work with people who are struggling in relationships. A lot of them come in with sexual issues and we end up working around a lot of what I call connectfulness, a lot of the emotional and the soft stuff. And we work our way back into the sexual stuff. And there's often a lot of early attachment wounds and trauma and stuff that plays into how we connect with each other because this is human connection. It doesn't feel like suffering to me yeah. because I know how to help them and because I get to see where they come in, but I also know the trajectory and I get to see where they leave. So that actually has a lot to do with whether or not you get burnt out in practice, right? And we talk a lot about burnout. We talk about self-care, which I've become averse to the word self-care because I think it's just kind of lost its meaning along the way. What do you, you call it then? Well, still important. <laughs> I don't call it something different. I just, I think it's more about the way we think about our clients and more about 
just kind of the responsibility we take for their lives and their suffering than it is just doing yoga and like drinking green tea. So I always encourage people just to think a little bit deeper as to what it really means and kind of what's happening for you in the session psychologically that is requiring you to need so much self-care or to need six weeks off or whatever it is or feeling like I need to get away from my life, you know, here or take this huge break from my clients. So to me, it's more about the psychological aspect, which I just Mm. think is overlooked. It's less about like going to the spa, which is helpful. Yeah, Um, I guess I see it maybe a little differently, which is totally fine. I mean, there's room for both of our viewpoints in here. I think that there's also a need to put ourselves first. mm -hmm. That sometimes that's not so much about how we're holding space for our clients, but it's about also holding space for ourselves. Which is very counterculture and goes against what a lot of therapists really have felt their entire lives, which is that I need to take care of other people at the expense of myself. Right. And so here we have people who are being of service, being of service, being of service, but if they're not filling their own cups, right, that's another way to approach burnout. So that's the way that I look at it. But I'm really curious also about the way that you see it. Well, going back to your point about burnout and the clients that you help and the work that you do, what I take from that is this is so critical is your clients have these issues, they have this suffering. And what's important is you feel like you have an ability and the resources to help them, right? We know that a lot of what creates trauma and makes something traumatic is being in a situation where you don't have the tools you need to remedy the situation. And again, I can go back to being an EMT or being in a situation where you don't have the tools or the medication or whatever it is you need to actually meet the demands of your situation. This could be, again, could be said about any type of trauma. So I think in that regard, if you feel prepared to help the clients that you're seeing, you're going to be all right, right? That's going to bode pretty well for you in your practice. You're going to bear a lot of witness to that suffering, but at the end of the day, also feel like, you know what, but I did something about it. I have something to offer. And if you don't have those tools, get more training. <laughs> well, I was, get I a was, bigger toolbox. <laughs> but going back to kind of where we started with the feelings of, you know, I know nothing and yeah. am I enough? Right. Yeah. So we started there with talking <clears throat> about therapists already feeling incompetent. And, and this is where, yeah, I think sometimes a client when they come or they come and talk about kind of nothing for a while or those clients who say they want to keep coming to therapy but they don't really invite you in I do think some clients actually just want us to bear witness to their suffering and that can be hard to do because I think some clients want us to actually just kind of sit on our hands and bear witness to it and hang in there with them and I think that's really hard to do or that's hard for me to do yeah it makes me think a little bit of some of the writing of Viktor Frankl Mm -hmm. yeah you know, in man's search for meaning. Yeah. He talks a lot about the power of bearing witness. Yes. You know, and so I'm kind of thinking like there are so many different ways of doing therapy. There are so many different ways of being human. There are so many different ways of being of service, of sitting with people. And I think a lot of maybe we shift a little bit in gears right now. We shift into marketing a little bit, but a little Mm -hmm. bit of knowing who you are as a therapist is about knowing how you show up in the room and whom you're most comfortable working with and how you work with them. And then, you know, we turn that around into what could be a really powerful marketing message. Absolutely. I'm working with a lot of folks right now on, and I think a lot of 
consultants are doing this in terms of revising website copy and creating you know powerful messages. But we really do have to speak directly to the client's pain in order to let them know first and foremost that we get it, that we can resonate with that pain even through the first sentence on your website. And I think that's, again, a shift for a lot of therapists because we tend to just your about page, it's, that must be about me. You know, I went to James Madison University and I trained with this person and that person. But in reality, your about page is actually still about the client. And that's a major kind of miss when your about page looks like that and looks like a bunch of I statements. I recently revised one of my clinicians, her about page in the same way and just sat down and had her describe a client that she works with, a client and describe their pain in detail. And I just sat there and wrote down everything and then how she helped reduce that pain, helped them through it. And since we've done that, there's actually been a tremendous growth in the converted leads that we get through the website who come to her page and people actually want to see her more than anyone right now, including me. So it's been really neat to see. That's awesome. It's time to redo everybody's about page itself. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Using hers as a model. You know, they do say that the about page is the most visited page on any website. Yeah. It tends to be. Yeah. 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 John, you've recently started a new podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I started a podcast. It's called The Marketing Workshop, and it's a product of my consulting business, privatepracticeworkshop.com, because I felt like as podcasting continues to grow as a medium, there's a lot of podcasts out there that are just generally about all things private practice, about setting your fees, developing your niche, getting an office, all this good stuff. But none of them really address every week the number one question of therapists, which is how am I going to get more clients? Mm. So... I've kind of set out with that to demystify marketing and even to make that word a little more comfortable to us. What kind of things do you address on your podcast? What kind of topics are you addressing around marketing? So I'm bringing in people, all of the people that we know and love in our kind of space, like Allison from Abundance Practice Building. Joe Sanok was interviewed this morning, Laura Long, Cat Love, Melvin from Selling the Couch. I'm bringing in all those people because they have amazing things to say. And at the same time, I'm finding that a lot of us, we're kind of saying the same things and within among therapists, we're kind of recycling a lot of the same ideas about marketing. And there are so many people out there who've created amazing brands and an amazing following, and they know even more about marketing than we know, and they have a lot of fresh ideas. So that was the other idea with the podcast is that I'm bringing in people who are outside of our field. Like last week, there's a guy named Sean Meyer. He started a website called goatmonthly.com where he sends out a picture of his goats wearing clothes. It's like really high production value (laughs) and people subscribe to it and it helps fund his farm. That's awesome. (laughs) So like using a physical product and using snail mail to actually connect with his audience and it's spurred all these relationships and opportunities. So I'm just bringing all these different people. I have like a dog trainer. I have a famous CrossFit person coming up, all sorts of different people that can really teach us more than we know among this group about marketing. Oh, I love that. I love how you're branching out and looking for the commonalities and the stuff that everybody can learn, even in our differences. Yeah. I want people to really try to grasp that we are relationship experts, right? As therapists, we help people with relationships and we help through creating a relationship with our clients. And the reality is marketing is a relationship. It's just a relationship with a group of people, with an audience, When you start to think about it that way, it starts to feel a little more manageable. And we get in deep to all the technical things like 
different platforms like Facebook ads, like Google AdWords, stuff like that, email marketing. You get all that technical stuff too. But I really try to, again, just demystify the whole thing. I love that. Yeah. And I totally do agree that we are relationship experts. I think that sometimes that can be a thing that's hard for some therapists to hold. But when we flip it around and we remind ourselves that the expertise really lies in the relationship we have with ourselves, with really knowing and understanding ourselves and knowing how we come across, we can make that into a really powerful message. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And the reality is, I think, if you're in private practice and you have a pretty good grasp on marketing or you found maybe two strategies that work for you, you're going to have a pretty happy practice, you know, and you can figure out a lot of other things on your own. There's a lot of free stuff out there in terms of like, whether it's setting your fees or developing your niche or whatever it is, all the kind of operations of running a practice, that stuff can really fall into place when you have enough clients coming in at a steady rate and they're the clients that you like working with. I just think that has a lot to do with whether or not you can sustain yourself in private practice and enjoy this work that you're doing. You know, what's coming up for me as we're talking about this right now is earlier we were talking about fear and how for you, when your father died, there was like a shift that the fear of not making it in business became a lot smaller because it was in contrast to the bigger why. And as you're talking about this right now, one of the things that I find myself thinking about is that when you have enough clients coming in, when you're not scared over your livelihood and your income, then it can give you some space to think about all the other stuff. But they kind of really go hand in hand. It's like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, and a lot of therapists that I work with are in that situation of not full yet, feeling desperate, feeling ambivalent about their fees or raising their fees or charging out of pocket. And I do a lot of work to help them get through that and to realize their worth and to just get comfortable, as comfortable as possible charging what they're going to charge, just knowing and really holding their value in that way. Yeah. When you have that stuff, when you're comfortable, when you're full and a potential client calls, that conversation goes very differently a lot of times than when you have two clients and you're trying to act like you have 20, but you Mm -hmm. actually really desperately need this client and you're willing to do whatever it takes and slide to a $30 session or whatever it is. So it does give you that kind of confidence and makes you feel like I already know I'm desirable because I've got a full you know, caseload to kind of prove it. And then we feel more worthwhile. But again, the challenge is continuing to hold your worth and feel okay and stay confident, even when you're struggling, even when there's a dip in clients or clients ditch you for just sight unseen and you don't know why. Yeah, you've got to hang in there, really. Yeah. John, I want to really thank you for your time and for coming here and talking with us about all of this, that from the messy moments and the fear-based stuff into the marketing and how it all ties together and who the therapist is as a person really shines through. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of your messes too along the way. It's been good and it's humbling for me to kind of share these more vulnerable parts. But again, I hope they do just break down some of this myth that everyone else has it all together. Yeah. Because none of us do. No, we're all the whole catastrophe, (laughs) right? John Kabat-Zinn. Totally, 100%. So let us know how folks can get a hold of you. Sure. Yeah, you know, you can easily look up the marketing workshop on iTunes or through my website, privatepracticeworkshop.com. I mentioned, 
you know, running the operations of your business. I created a free online course for that called the Business Basics Workshop that you can enroll in. And that really was my attempt at leveling the playing field. So everyone knows this is how I run my practice. These are all the strategies and systems I have in place. I've got giveaway. I've got the spreadsheet I use. I've got templates and scripts and stuff like that. All that I'm just giving away because I know at the end of that, people need some help with figuring out how am I going to get more clients, right? That's just the number one concern we have. I love working with people individually. You know, the more I do this, I end up seeing less clients, you know, in my practice and working with more therapists and really just love doing this work, no matter what stage of your practice you're in. So I have some consulting packages. I do both group and then individual. The groups are closed for now, but I have a lot of great individual packages and I wanted to offer 10% off for anyone, any listeners of this podcast who referenced this episode. And I offer a free consult. So if you want to just call and get in touch again, you can probably guess I'm pretty informal about things and I really just like to connect with people, even if we don't work together so I can learn about what's going on in your practice, how I could be helpful or how I could refer you to something else. So I would just encourage people to get in touch. You can do that through the website or email just john at privatepracticeworkshop.com. That is awesome. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners. And I encourage those of you who are interested to take John up on those offers. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Thank you for being with us. I hope that you got a lot out of today's episode with John Clark. I know that I certainly enjoyed this conversation. One of the biggest things that I take away is the reflection of how the relationships that we have with ourselves inform the marketing and the confidence with which we step into the room with our clients. And so on that note, I would love to invite you to join the Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program. These are newly forming intimate groups of therapists, coaches, and healers. And our intention is to help you do more of what you love by creating within you a deep sense of trust that you are good enough. You can find a link to learn more in our show notes. You've been listening to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, a connectfulness project. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And while you're there, join our Facebook community at practiceofbeingseen.com slash community. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps us to reach more listeners. And it especially helps us when you leave a review in Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback about this episode and any others, along with your requests for future topics and guests. Drop us a line over at practiceofbeingseen.com slash feedback. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music is by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of the Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. Connectfulness.